Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome to the podcast, Full Prefrontal. I'm here with Todd. How are you, Todd? I'm doing good. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You know, as we record all these, we're in the throes of the COVID-19 lockdown. So I'm so grateful that we have so many great conversations scheduled. Uh, It's occupying a lot of our time. And you're certainly up for a treat because today's guest is going to help us understand how to elevate the experience of education and learning, not just for students, but for the teachers as well. He's a very compassionate human being who, at least everything I've read that he has written, makes me feel very optimistic about the future of the next generation that's coming up the ranking. So it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest today. He is Dr. Douglas Fisher. He joined the Department of Education Leadership in 2011, having served as a professor of language and literacy education in the Department of Teacher Education at San Diego State University, where he has been since 1998. In addition, he is a teacher and an administrator at Health Sciences High and Middle College. He is a prolific writer, and he's written incredible and meaningful books on several topics, and he has co-authored them with a few partners that he works with. And finally, he is a recipient of an International Reading Association Celebrate Literacy Award. He's a member of the California Reading Hall of Fame and the Farmer Award for Excellence in Writing from the National Council of Teachers of English. And the last one, but not the least, is as a, a Krista McAuliffe Award for Excellence in Teacher Association. So welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation to be here with you today. Well, I asked this question of all my guests. You are in business of teaching the educators who teach how to learn. Tell me a little bit about your own experience as a learner. When did you discover the methods of teaching yourself, if you did during K-12 education? And if you have any memorable experience with a teacher who had a deep influential role in your life? Oh, great. So I think if you read my report cards from elementary school, I was always teaching other people's stuff. I was a peer tutor. I was a class tutor. That's part of who I was growing up. So I think that that was always there. And I always knew teaching would be something in part of my life. So whether it was teaching health or teaching English or teaching young kids, I never was sure where. Like I I majored in different things in college, but I always knew that whatever I was going to learn, I would end up teaching. So that was my vision. That was my goal. I had so many amazing teachers who shaped me through my K-12 experiences in public schools. So a student teacher in sixth grade, my teacher, had a student teacher when I was in sixth grade. And he was just this really interesting, dynamic young guy. And it's crazy to think now, but like he would put us in his car and he would take us places, you know, on these field trips and things like that. And of course, with parent permission and everything, but it's kind of hard to believe that that was allowed. And then I had teachers in high school that blended courses together in creative ways. And they changed from year to year and different teacher combinations and different topics. And they were also very passionate and very credible with all of us. Wow. So certainly, you know, 
what comes through here is you are a very engaged learner and you care deeply about what you are learning and the people that surrounded you. So that brings me to our first question. How do you define learning? You say that every child achieves when there is an opportunity to learn. Can you tell us a little bit about what receiving that opportunity to learn means in the educational context? Yeah, I guess learning means change to me, that you're different after the experience. So when you've learned something, you've now changed. And whether that's your conceptual knowledge, your strategic knowledge, your procedural knowledge, you've changed. And so I think of learning as how do we encourage change? And you can learn things yourself, but some things you learn through other people, through your interactions with other people, whether those are your peers or your teachers or the adults in your life. So I think the whole idea is for me, how do we best structure experiences to get that change, that learning that we're looking for? And then having opportunities to apply that learning in other situations where the people who are supporting you are no longer present. So how do I structure things such that you will get an opportunity to practice and apply that change that you went through? So, so it's not just learning for learning's sake. It's also learning so that you can practice and apply things in weird, different, unique situations. I really love this second part of your definition of learning, that the learner becomes the self-teacher where they have that capacity. They have developed that capacity and inculcated those habits and behaviors where they can sustain themselves without the external support. That's a very powerful way to become independent. Mm -hmm. So you have spent substantial time evaluating and examining what type of instructional methodologies foster learning. What are some of the conclusions you have drawn or have arrived at? So I guess Nancy and I started our journey trying to figure out how to make a theory come to life in a classroom. And that theory that we adopted was gradual release of responsibility. That was our first big, like, okay, we're going to see how you actually, because it sounds awesome. We release responsibility gradually, intentionally, purposefully to students. But how does that look in a classroom? And so we spent a lot of years working through the various moves that teachers could make to release responsibility. And so we ended up with four phases, can occur in any order that makes sense for what the students need to learn, that every day there's an opportunity for students to collaborate and talk and interact using academic language with their peers. Sorry, that some of the minutes would be spent in those collaborative, productive, struggle kinds of conversations. And that every day the teacher would look for errors, mistakes, misconceptions, and guide learners through some thinking, some prompting and cueing and questioning to guide learners. And that every day the teachers would model their thinking or demonstrate, making sure kids knew what they were supposed to learn, and then giving them examples of that learning. Now, that doesn't have to come at the outset of a lesson. And I think that's one of the mistakes when people read some of our work. They think it's very linear. And we're thinking it's more recursive or more cyclical that you can use these for any way. The last is independent application and practice. We were talking about that a little bit before. How do you get students to practice and apply so that that learning really sticks? And you have to change the situation and get kids to generalize and apply. So there are four phases that I think about for general learning is there's always a collaborative where you interact with someone else. There's always an error correction or guiding phase. There's always a focusing, a phase where we go deep in the teacher's mind or another adult's mind, learner's mind, and then there's a phase where you practice and apply. So we say there's collaborative learning every day, there's guided instruction every day, there's focused instruction every day, and then there's independent learning every day. So those are the four major things. 
over the time, we started to look at John Hattie's work and saying, wow, there are effect sizes that we can consider. Like, what is the most powerful thing we could do as educators? What are like the big effects that we could get for students? And we started saying, wow, many of them are in what we call the collaborative phase. So jigsaws and reciprocal teaching and class discussion have a really good effect size. And then there's some effect size like on direct instruction, which we would put under the focus. So we started doing that. And then we had a conversation with John, and he was talking about his interest in the difference between surface learning, deep learning, and more transfer of learning. Mm-hmm. So now we've been thinking about there are things we do as educators that work when students are at the surface introductory foundational level of learning. But those things, by and large, don't work when the learner's ready to go to deep learning. And then we have to change our approaches again to get a student to go from deep to transfer to become that self-regulated learner that we were talking about earlier. So now we think about, even in a gradual release of responsibility, what are the strategies? What are the tools we have when it's surface learning time versus what are the tools we have when it's more deep learning time versus transfer learning? And sometimes within the same lesson, we can take a learner, depending on the learning intention, the objective or the goal, we could take them surface deep to transfer in the same lesson. But sometimes that more just to do the surface learning. And it might take a couple of days to do deep learning. And then it might take you the whole next week to actually get to the point of transfer. We want to be very careful about putting times on these things. Like how many minutes do you do collaborative learning or how many minutes do you do independent learning or how many minutes required for surface learning? We're really careful not to quantify that because we don't really have evidence of minutes required for those kinds of things. We do, we do think a lot about what are the moves that teachers can make to build the learning experiences for students. Do you mind giving us some examples so that the listeners can understand these moments of learning? Like what kind constitutes surface learning versus deep learning versus yeah. transfer learning? Sure. So when I think about surface learning, so it's introductory or foundational knowledge. So some of that knowledge is more conceptual and some of that knowledge is more strategic. So if students aren't great at making inferences, if that's new or they're not yet developed that, then there's some surface learning that I would have to do around inferencing. And that surface learning could occur through teacher modeling or teacher think aloud because that is very introductory in nature. But if I keep thinking aloud after they get it on inferencing, they're never going to go deep. Got it. To go deep, they need to start interacting with other people you know, maybe doing some more sophisticated note-taking or some graphic organizers where they talk to other people and they start to look at those inferences. And then at some point when they're reading on their own, they should be making logical inferences on text that they're not being taught, where they apply it. Got it. Here's another example. Graphic organizers, you know, well-researched, decades of research, strong effect sizes. But if you don't know anything on a concept yet, you can't do the graphic organizer. So graphic organizers are often used prematurely because if you don't know anything, if you don't know enough to see the relationships, you can't do the graphic organizer. So unfortunately, in some classrooms, what happens is the students copy what they see on a dry erase board onto their own graphic organizer, but they didn't do any of the conceptual organization of the information. And that was like, oh, we've moved too fast to deep learning. They weren't ready for it. So we got to go back to surface learning build some of that conceptual knowledge and then say to students, 
here's what we're thinking about next. How do you see the cause and effect relationships? How do you see the hierarchy of this information? How do you see it dividing into three areas or whatever it is? Because then students are likely to go from surface to deep. But then to transfer that information, they have to use it beyond the graphic organizer. Graphic organizers work really well for deep learning, not so well for surface learning and not so well for transfer of learning. They have a moment in the learner's trajectory where they serve a purpose well. Yeah, so very interesting. You're talking about very engaged teaching where the teacher is deeply observant of these milestones that students are reaching or not reaching and adapting Mm. very effectively. I had a very quick question. Recently, I had a guest, a journalist, Natalie Wexler, who wrote a beautiful book called The Knowledge Gap. And she Uh talks about this issue. I'm sure you're familiar with the book, but this idea that the teachers, particularly in the elementary where there's a lot of uh, freedom, are not not so much freedom, but there's no prescribed content-specific fund of knowledge for students to grow in. The teachers have the autonomy to choose, but sometimes the choices they make may not be creating this the vast base of knowledge upon which comprehension can take place. Instead, mm-hmm. a lot of focus goes on to teaching <clears throat> comprehension, such as right. identifying a main idea, but not seeing the big picture. So I was thinking, and maybe I'm misinterpreting, so please help me, but that surface learning may be misinterpreted, but you're also referring to laying the groundwork so that all the pertinent details that build the comprehension upon which deeper reflective thinking and extrapolations can be built needs to be done, right? So who is deciding the content or rather the subject matter or the depth to which the subject needs to be taught? Like, for example, dinosaurs, it can be taught to second grader for a whole year, or it can be introduced in one week. And I mean, I know we are getting into the weeds of that, but I see that having an incredible bearing on student developing knowledge, right? You're exactly right. So we do have to use our standards as guides. So if we're going to do a longer unit of study on dinosaurs, what are the standards that students would be mastering as the vehicle, the example of dinosaurs? Because dinosaurs are not in our standards. So there is no reading standard that says you have to know about dinosaurs. Exactly. So that creates confusion. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But background knowledge, you know, your knowledge of the world and information in the world significantly predicts whether or not you're going to understand something. And so if all I teach you for a year is dinosaurs, then in the future, in third grade, you'll be really good at anything related to dinosaurs. But when you read about, you know, third grade starts to talk about the way government works. You won't know anything, and all the readings you do will be really hard because you don't have sufficient background knowledge. So these are really difficult decisions teachers have to make. What do the standards say that kids need to know? And I do think we've gone so far into the reading standards and the mathematics standards that in elementary school, science and social studies get shortchanged. And as a result, we are seeing knowledge gaps with kids, which then compounds their comprehension because if you don't know a lot of stuff, When that author brings that in, you don't really understand it. So I know we really focus on getting reading scores up, but I do think the lesson learned is how are we also making sure kids know stuff about the biologic, physical, and social world out there so that when they read about it and they encounter these ideas, they have some background knowledge, they have some vocabulary, that that's already part of the experience, the world. So to answer your question about dinosaurs for one week versus a a year, I think we'd have to be very careful about what do the standards say kids need to know and be able to do as we design learning experiences for them. Hmm. 
that's such a very, very important thing. <laughs> what do we want children to be able to do? And I know this probably I don't want to spend too much time, but am I understanding it correctly that in elementary, the activities and content that builds knowledge is not as well defined? So let's talk about the themes that develop understanding of the biological world or the social world. Mm-hmm. But uh-huh. is individual school system or private versus public school have autonomy to choose what part of biological system they expose the children to? Is that why that leads to some disparity or differences? And the socioeconomic background, how does that influence those kids who come with poor background knowledge to begin with, enter the school system, and then their that teaching also may not further enrich their background knowledge? Well, the states and provinces have standards, kindergarten up, of what kids are supposed to learn in social sciences, in science, in mathematics. The challenge is that some schools have felt extreme pressure because those areas are not assessed. And so if you only assess reading and mathematics in grade three, that's what gets taught by and large. And other things get crowded out because there's pressure to perform well on state tests. So the states have, I mean, I live in California, we have, you know, here's what first graders are supposed to know around science and social studies and the four arts and all that stuff. It's highly dependent on the pressure, whether it comes at the district level, the site level, or the personal teacher level. How do I use the minutes I'm given to accomplish things? And what do I need to accomplish? And so your question about kids who live in poverty, we do see more skill-based reading lessons by and large because the reading skills have to grow and what gets crowded out is science and social studies knowledge. But that then compounds the fact that when they start to encounter texts that are related to the biologic, physical, and social world, they don't know. So yes, we have to, it can't be this either or. We have to teach kids the skills they need. And in doing so, the vehicles should be the appropriate science and social studies concepts and content so that they start to have knowledge of the world. So I don't want to say we only teach concepts because we do need to teach kids how to read. But the examples and the ideas and the things we talk about with them should be around the concepts, around the life outside that. So, you know, the biological world, the physical world, the social world, all of those kinds of things should come in to their classroom. So I do think we are in this knowledge gap era where you're seeing a lot of people writing about younger kids need more knowledge so that they can mobilize that knowledge in comprehension. And you're seeing people saying clearly, young kids especially have to be taught skills to read so we can accelerate their reading growth. And then the knowledge helps build their comprehension. Wow, it's such a tricky balance. And yeah, a lot of wisdom goes into it. So if I can take us into a little bit more depth of what you were talking about earlier in the gradual release responsibility model, which I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of, the way you have studied it and talked about it. So in your work with Nancy Frey, you talk about the collaborative learning that you mentioned earlier. It is a productive group work, but it has specific components. And I think it might be very interesting if you could share some thoughts about how it works out and what benefits can teacher facilitate for the student in kind of developing this understanding? Because I do see lots of schools I go observe. And of course, my practice is such that I work with children with executive function difficulties. Mm -hmm. And by definition, they are having difficulty in managing themselves, managing intent, managing relationships. And they sometimes are lost 
in group work because they do not understand the purpose or they don't understand their place or they may have social emotional challenges. But what is interesting to me about the group work is there is certain intention that teacher has, but sometimes if that intention doesn't come through to a student, it can be ineffective. But you talk about it, uh, that collaborative work in a very specific way. Do you mind diving deep into that a little bit? Sure. And I think one of the things you just said, super important, students have to know the purpose of the collaborative work. They have to know what they're supposed to be getting from it and why. And I think if that precondition is not available, there's a whole bunch of kids who are going to say, hey, that, that other student wants to do all the work for the group, fine by me. Exactly. And I see that a lot. So, yeah, we do see that a lot. In part, so purpose is super important. I think purpose in our life is super important. I think purpose for collaborative learning is important. So that is a precondition. And then, then I think, so when we think of collaborative learning, we've divided this umbrella into two sides. So there's something we call group work, and there's something we call productive group work. Group work has no accountability. It's for sharing, whereas productive group work has accountability and it's more for problem solving. And when a teacher says, you know, to a class, you know, here's, here's, we've been talking about this, turn to your partner and say what you think, you know, turn to your partner and talk about this or whatever. That's a group work task. If a teacher uses a group work task, the teacher has to be present in the learning environment, listening into what students are saying, monitoring it. It's an opportunity to share, and then you come back together. Productive group work, however, has this individual accountability. So, for example, with Jigsaw, I have a part of the text. I am responsible for part of this text. Nobody else in my group has that part of the text, so I have to know this part really well so that I can share it with other members of my group. My role is defined, my purpose is defined, etc. So that's increasing the accountability. We have, in, in elementary school, we have teachers use this collaborative poster. So it's a, a large piece of paper, poster-sized paper, and each kid gets a different color marker. The first thing they do is put their name on the bottom in their color marker. And then they can only contribute to the poster in the color that they've been assigned because their name is in oh, that color that. at the bottom. It's that. super simple, but people forget about this. If you don't have that individual accountability, then someone sits back and says, I don't know what we're doing. And someone says, oh, she'll do it for us. She always does all the work. And so... But when you have some simple individual accountability and the teacher will come by and says, tell me why you wrote this in red, even if another kid said it to that kid, like here, write this in red. Here's why. Even if a kid says, here's what I wrote, here's what you write in red, it's now coming out of that learner's mouth when the teacher asks. But even more importantly, in this productive group work, saying, you know, the answer is 24 is not helpful. So when we teach kids what help looks like, it's not helpful to give away the answer. It's helpful to say the answer is 24 because here's how I found it out. The other kids might say, I agree with you. I disagree with you. Where did you find that? How did you know that? That's what that. we're trying to get to the collaborative learning where it's more of some argumentation skills for which there's individual accountability. I think schools are filled with grownups who have experienced very bad collaborative learning <laughs> yes. by their well-meaning teachers at the time with no accountability. And I think schools are filled with grown-ups who did all the work for the group. And there were other people in their groups who did very little work. And then this many years later, they're all bitter about it because it wasn't fair. And so when I talk to teachers about collaborative learning, a whole bunch of them say, I know I should be doing this. My kids should be talking together more often, but I don't like group work. And when I ask why, it always goes back to their own experiences when they were in school, that they wow. did all the work for the group. 
And so then we started introducing all this, you know, individual accountability. Well, have you considered this? And have you considered this? Once you add individual accountability, then each learner knows, here's what I'm responsible for. Here's how my teacher's going to know what I'm responsible for. But it also gives the kids a sense of we're all in this together. I'm not successful unless we're all successful. I love that. I have to agree with you. That doesn't mean I have to get the same answer as you, unless there is one answer. Or there's not just one way to get to the answer. So the purpose, the right task, and then setting up the structures that don't say one person can do all the work, and that is defined as success. So can I ask you an example of how will the teacher deliver the purpose of a group collaborative group work? What would she be saying to the class? Even though I, I kind of know what you will say, but it'll be nice mm-hmm. to hear how you would facilitate that and how will it look different for younger kids versus older yeah. kids? So it depends on what kids are going to be learning. Let's say we've chosen Jigsaw, you know, high yield strategy. Today we are learning about animal adaptations to their environment. So in your expert group, you're going to have uh, owls and in your group, you're going to have chameleons and in your group, you're going to have moths. You'll know that, that creature really, really, really well. But the other people, when you go to your home group, they won't know that because they didn't read about owls because they were reading about crocodiles or moths or chameleons. And so your job is to teach them. And then you're going to come back to your group and say, how are the animals that we read about different and alike? And just by setting up the expectations and the rules as we introduce the task, first of all, it sets clarity to learning and it sets kids on the expectations. Here's my role in doing this. And the success I experience will be because of these things. Wow, that's great. That's great. And for older kids, because they tend to do a lot more group work, but the group work turns to be like submitting or adding to a blog post or or creating a poster when they DV up work and they do work at home. (laughs) Sometimes the, the purpose is lost on them. And also, I think the teacher moves from explicit discussion of the purpose to more implicit nature of a discussion yeah, or a conveying purpose. And that's lost yeah. on these children who don't have greatest executive function. Right. And I think, well, even in the kids who do have better executive function, this, they just say compliance. I'm just going to do it because the teacher told me to. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's I true. Do think, <laughs> I do think the adolescents should know what it is they're supposed to be learning from the task they're doing. So I think we focus too much on the task. So teachers say, we're going to make a blog post today, or we're going to update our Google Docs today. Yes, we're going to do that. But why? What are we learning from this? So I think learning intentions, learning objectives, learning goals, whatever people call them, it has to focus on what we want kids to learn. And especially as we get to adolescence, they need to know the relevance of this. Why am I learning this? And as Nancy, Nancy always says, it doesn't have to be for world peace. I mean, that would be great. But there's not, that's not what we're trying to accomplish with this. They have to know why. This part will help you when we get to this part, which will help you when we do this. It's simple. Nancy and I do a lot of English language arts. So we teach a lot of writing. So when we say to them, we're working on our introductions, because if you can grab your reader right away, your reader's more likely to stick with you. That's why we're working on introductions right now. So the only thing we're working on are introductions because we want you to really grab your reader so your reader keeps paying attention to you. So Love that. you know, that's where we want to go with it. Not because standard 3.2 or whatever says you must have. They don't care about that. And I certainly don't think we should say to ninth graders, when you're in business someday, you'll need to write memos <laughs> with good introductions. 
that's too distant. Yeah, and meaningless. Yeah, totally. Meaning. That's great. Now, kind of set us up. You talk a lot about this idea of personal responsibility as a process and as a goal, which is fantastic because that's what good education that has embedded executive function teaching and learning can achieve. So how do you define personal responsibility in the context of education when students don't know why they're learning what they're learning, as you just mentioned about the purpose? But secondly, why these methodologies or why this process? Like, why am I asking you to do an essay versus a fill in the blanks versus match the columns versus draw a cell and a label, you know? So there's that understanding of a function, every activity, which kind of creates a global, larger understanding. But the second part is that it leads to these process tools, which I love the idea of process tools, because ultimately what the student is going to take from uh, previous grade to next grade is these process tools and then the foundational knowledge. So what were your thoughts behind this concept of personal responsibility in education, in the learning environment? So Nancy and I have spent our careers in schools that educate kids who by and large live in poverty, and they end up in some places being taught all kinds of isolated skills and lots of skill practice. And we're saying that that's inequitable. That doesn't result in kids who have great responsibility for their own learning and self-regulation and all those kinds of things. So we started on this journey of how do we get kids to have responsibility for their learning? That doesn't mean the teachers aren't responsible for learning as well, but how do we have the students be responsible for their learning? And over many years and lots of lit reviews and lots of reading, we started narrowing it down to some things that have to be in place for students to have responsibility for their learning. And the first one we've talked about, they have to know what they need to learn. They have to know where they're going. But even more importantly, I think, is they have to know where they currently are. And I think we have, we're embarrassed to say to kids, this is things you don't know yet. Where these are your areas that you're not strong on yet. We tend to hide current performance levels from students or we're too harsh when we talk about them. I think motivation comes in a couple of ways. So if I know I'm supposed to be here and this is what I'm learning, but I'm here right now, that helps motivate me to try. The second part of motivation is when you experience success. So if you need to be at level 37, yeah. but you're level two, I don't give you level 36 to do next. I give you level three to do next. And I think that gets confusing with you know, more of a developmental approach, but success builds motivation. But there has to be a gap. If I could easily run a marathon and do it tomorrow, I wouldn't be working so hard to do this, right? I, that, <laughs> yes. If I have a goal, I know my current performance, and I know the gap in between it. So that's the first two. It's kids need to know where they're going, what's next in their learning journey, and they need to know where they are. And that changes teacher behavior. We have to be clear on what kids need to learn, what's next for you, and where they are now in a kind, growth-producing way rather than a harsh way. And I'm certainly not saying put everybody's reading scores on a wall and use clothespins to make them move them as they increase their reading scores. It's personal. It's not public in that. So uh, celebrations can be public, but I don't think we should put up their current performance levels in a big public way. And then the third area that I think about is helping students select tools for their learning. There are many ways to learn things. Unfortunately, lots of teachers say to kids, this is the one way we're going to do it because this is the way that I like it and it works for me. And, you know, if you think about note-taking, I like Cornell note-taking because I've, I've learned it, but there are other ways to take notes. So we said to our students, we're all going to do Cornell note-taking at our school. Everybody does it, all the teachers, because we're trying to build a habit. But if you really prefer a different way, it's fine for you to take notes in a different way. But all the examples you'll see will come from Cornell notes because we're trying to give you some consistency. So we try to balance both. Same with graphic organizers. I talked about that earlier. 
here are 25, here are 20 graphic organizers at the beginning of the school year. By this point in the year, they should be picking the graphic organizers that work for them. If you're doing compare contrast, I don't care which graphic organizer you use. Choose a learning strategy, a learning tool. We have to get to that place where students are selecting tools. There are piles of study skills. Why would I say to students, here's the only way you can study? Here are different study tools. Which one do you believe is going to work for you? And then the fourth area that we think a lot about is how to help students monitor their progress. If we set a goal for ourselves, we figure out how to monitor if we're going to make it or not. Are we on track to meet this goal? If not, how do we make adjustments? And so a lot of students know, here's my goal. Here's what I should attain, you know, nine weeks from now or whatever. But they don't really know if they're on track. And I think these point-based systems where it's all about the letter grades are all about performance goals. So if I get enough points, I get the A. And the evidence says mastery goals are way better. You actually learn more when the goals focus on mastery rather than performance. And so if we could reframe some of this, so here's what you need to know. Here's what you have to master to be really good at this. Here's where you are now. Here's how you can monitor your progress getting there. And I've had all these videos of all these kids, like here's on writing, like I'm at a level four in my writing right now. Here are the things I do to get to level five. Here's what I need to do next. I'm really working on my paragraphing. I'm really working on dividing ideas into paragraphs. That's going to get me to my level five. And then after that, I'm going to go to level six. And when they have tools to monitor their progress, and they know where they are, and they know where they're going, they're more likely to actually get there. And then the fifth and sixth areas we think about is recognizing errors as opportunities to learn. Like, that's part of it. You shouldn't be humiliated, shamed, or embarrassed when you make an error. Errors are opportunities to learn, something we didn't know before. If an hour goes by in a classroom and there were no errors, the students already knew all that stuff and kind of wasted the time. And then the last area is ultimately when kids own their learning, when they self-regulate at high levels, they naturally start to teach other people. And so we have to, as educators, provide opportunities for students to tutor, teach, guide each other. It can't only be the adult who's the, quote, teacher. I read recently this book on the, called The Third Teacher. And this is way back Italian, Reginald Emilia schools. And I, I don't remember ever reading this. And they talk about three teachers. In every person's life, there are three teachers. There's the adult, and that can be your parents or the people who are paid, the teachers. The second are your peers, and Nancy and I have done a ton of work on the second teacher of how to get the peers mobilized. But in the third teacher, the third teacher is the environment and what the environment does, the, the, the environment that's created. And as you were talking about kids who struggle with executive function, the environment can be a really good teacher or a bad teacher in this area. And I think we tend to ignore the environmental stimuli and the environmental cues as a teaching tool and instead focus on the adult in the room. And so I think the third teacher is we have to mobilize all the other kids to be the second teacher and create spaces where the third teacher is actually contributing. So all three are always in play. Wow. Okay. So many amazing ideas running on here. One quick clarification for myself. When you say mastery goals is way better, how does teacher handle when she has 19, 20 kids in the classroom and they are at different tempo and they are not all aligned in the same way? So she somehow is held back by not able to move the curriculum forward because many are lagging or many are advancing. Yeah, these are all the realities of diverse classrooms that have existed since school started. And we talk about the diversity that exists today. 
but my grandmother had kids from five years of age to 14 years of age in the same classroom. And so, so (laughs) diversity in classrooms has always existed. We do our best. But when we say to students, here's how you get an A on this essay versus here's how you know you can write an essay. There's a difference there. And I think those are important distinctions Mm. is how do you know that you can convey your ideas in a compelling way? How do you know that you can persuade someone or convince someone of something? And how do you report information where people find you credible? And so the mastery oriented, yes, you're going to get a grade. I'm required by the state of California to give you a grade. But I care that you actually learn something. Very, very good. I think that you just pointed out something as you were talking about your grandmother. You don't even need to go that back. I will tell you from my own childhood, (laughs) you know, some of these practices, if my teachers had deployed in so many ways, my third teacher was a deeply, profoundly meaningful teacher for me. The environment and the contextual Mm -hmm. uh, wide experience with the world really, really helped me to become very adaptive. But some of the techniques of setting the kids to compete with each other was something that I saw in my classroom displaying student results, performance results Mm -hmm. openly (laughs) with their names and shaming people and ranking them by accomplishment was something that was not cool. (laughs) And also really not waiting to check in with students to see if learning actually had occurred as long as the teacher felt the teaching had occurred. (laughs) So not so great practices. (laughs) There's a super old, there's a cartoon, I think from like when I was becoming a teacher and it's two boys talking to it and there's a dog between them. And one of the boys says, I taught Stripe to whistle. And the other kid says, I don't hear him whistling. And the, the first one says, I said I taught him. I didn't say he learned it. And I think that happens all the time, like you were just saying. <laughs> yeah. There's that. a difference between teaching and learning. And that's been John Hattie's major focus is we should stop spending so much of our energy on the teaching. We should spend more energy on the learning. Lovely. So I asked this question the other day to another guest of mine. So let me ask you this. What is harder, teaching or learning? And why so, you think? Oh, that is a fascinating question. So, wow, I'm going to go with the teaching is harder because I think too often we just give away information and we don't let learners construct it. And so I think we plan experiences. So it's teacher modeling, direct instruction, but we plan things so that the learner owns that learning. And so I would love it if learning was easy because there was such awesome, meaningful experiences, which I think are super hard to design. So is it fair to categorize some children as difficult to teach children? And maybe a better question would be in your experience, what are some of the essential skills that all educators must exercise that are likely to guarantee transformation of behaviors in these difficult to teach children such that they're more engaged, curious, and willing to work in spite of having roadblocks in learning? Okay. So I think earlier in my career, I would say there were kids that were difficult to teach. I now say it, they're difficult to reach. And so I, I think- Oh, about, wow. Tell me the distinction. Bit. Yeah, that's neat. So- Because it's difficult to teach, I think, put some blame on the kid that, yep, you're difficult to teach because of whatever, versus for me, difficult to reach means it's my responsibility. I'm having a hard time reaching you, but it's my job. And people might say difficult to teach is the same, but for me, 
blames the kid. You're difficult to teach. It's part of who you are. I'm having a hard time reaching you. Now, I do think student-teacher relationships matter a lot. To paraphrase Rita Pearson, young people don't learn from old people they don't like. And so if (laughs) they don't have a good relationship with the adults, they're probably not going to learn much. I think teacher credibility is always at play. Do the kids actually think they can learn from this person? Has one of our highest effect sizes. I think that's why the same strategy gets different outcomes in different classrooms. It's all about teacher credibility. I think teacher clarity matters. Do the teachers actually know what the kids need to learn and do they communicate that to kids? And as part of clarity, do we make everything relevant? I mean, we have a whole bunch of kids who have all kinds of competing priorities for their time. And when something is relevant, highly relevant, they choose that over other options. And I think there are things we can do that focus on our reach. How do we actually reach this kid? What's my relationship with this learner? Is this, does this learner believe he or she can learn from me? Am I credible in that kid's eyes? Am I clear? Am I relevant? Do I line up tasks that make sense to get you to learn this? And the last thing I'll, I'll just emphasize that success breeds motivation. I think we're giving kids things that are super hard from them and no one wants to spend their day doing things they can't do. It doesn't feel good. Uh, There's some things that should cause us some struggle. I struggle with some things. Today, I did my very first ever Facebook Live event, and it was hard for me. I've never done this before. So some things, but then the rest of my day are things I probably could do, but I still needed to do them. And I think for some students, they never get that sense of success that they want again, and they want again, and they want again. Like when we think about questions, asking questions, why do you have to start with the hardest question you can think of? Why can't we start with a question that's pretty easy and let kids have some success? We're not going to leave them there. We're going to keep asking harder and harder questions. But why do we as teachers feel the need to ask the hardest question we can to show them how smart we are? Yeah, it just becomes all about them. And uh, I love that, like, hard to reach is really difficult to reach is something, your ownership, your responsibility. Mm -hmm. You know, my biggest regret is you were not my teacher. I would have been a kick-ass student. (laughs) Oh, thank you. That's very sweet. Oh, that's absolutely true. So as we close, do you believe that we have teacher education in place where teachers are learning all the things you just talked about? Because I would love that to be part of every young educator's curriculum. Either I'm not 100% sure where the gap is, but I'm seeing the gap. And the gap, of course, the best teachers continue to do the amazing work and live in this space. But then we are leaving some teachers behind. And I don't know what the reasons are for that gap. And not not lack of commitment or effort, of course. I think there are islands of excellence all over, of amazing teacher preparation programs. And then I think there are places that are allowed to be average. And I think that's part of the challenge in this profession is, is we don't have very clear, like, this is what you absolutely need as a teacher to be successful. But I do think it's islands of excellence everywhere, all over. And But not every place is excellent yet. There are teacher ed programs that just aren't very good at getting this kind of outcome. They produce technical experts, like people who know the techniques of teaching. They don't produce people who have all of this rounded thinking about how you meet needs. Thank you, Doug. Again, this has been a most invigorating, exciting conversation and truly meaningful for me as I think about myself as I do teacher training and talk about executive function curriculum for teachers to infuse in their classrooms. One of the inspirations that I've gotten today from you is to also apply the same principles to difficult to reach teacher 
who may yeah. not understand the importance of reflection or may feel that reflection takes too long, uh, consumes time and doesn't yield the right results because the kids are not cooperating. So it is the ownership is back on me. So I really appreciate that. So thank you so much for being here and really lighting up our world. So I'm very grateful for your presence today. Thank you. And thank you so much for the invitation. I enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you very much. All right. That's all the time we have for today. If you know of someone who might benefit from listening to today's conversation, a teacher, a principal, coach, parent, or student, we would be most grateful if you would kindly forward it to them. So on behalf of our host, Sucheta Kamath, today's guest, Dr. Douglas Fisher, and all of us at EXQ, thanks for listening. And we look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.